What's up, everybody? This is Max Cavalera, Cavalera's Conspiracy. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Stay true, stay heavy. Valeu. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another edition of Focus on Metal. So what to hate breed, Slayer, Slipknot, Seven Dust, Coal Chamber, Nashville Pussy, what have all these bands have in common? They were all part of the Tattoo the Earth tour back in uh, 2000. And yeah, I know, I hear what you're saying, what does that have to do with today's show? Well, today's show, we are going to be speaking with Scott Alderman, one of the guys behind the Tattoo the Earth tour, his uh, insane desire to uh, combine the worlds of tattooing and heavy metal. On March 15th, he'll be uh, putting out his brand new book. It is called Caravan of Pain, The True Story of the Tattoo the Earth Tour. And so this book is going to give you an insider's look of everything about this, from its idea, its inception, all the crazy crap they went through to actually get it out there. And remember, this is 2000, so this was before really tattooing became mainstream, and in a lot of states they went to, it wasn't even legal, and Scott will go into all of that as well in the interview. And, you know, besides just the narrative, there's also lots of pictures and memorabilia, all kinds of stuff in here as well. But just a really soup to nuts, in-depth book all about the uh, Tattoo the Earth Tour. And hopefully the interview with Scott this week is going to really whet your appetite to want to go out and get the book and really hear, you know, all the stuff that he refers to in here, the battles and and the crap that went wrong and shitty managers and all kinds of stuff. So a really incredibly candid interview with Scott this week and uh, sticking on East Coast again. You know, Jimmy Bell last week and uh, Scott is just up the road from us in Shrewsbury. I don't know, about 45 minutes away. I probably drive through Shrewsbury at least once every weekend. So we are definitely on an East Coast theme the last few weeks. But anyways, lots of good stuff. Long, long interview with Scott. And like I just said, he's incredibly truthful, candid, to the point, says it like it is. And hopefully after all of this, again, you are going to want to go out and pick yourself up your own copy of Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth Tour. So instead of making this longer by continuing to uh, yak, I'm going to turn it over to Richie and our guest this week, Scott Alderman. Hello. Is that Scott? That's me. Hey, it's Richie for the interview. Hey, how are you? I'm all right. So will we get into it? Sure. Sure, absolutely. Uh, The obvious question I have, first of all, because a lot of people aren't going to know, is what's the general concept of Tattoo the Planet? Oh, it's Tattoo the Earth. Or the Earth, sorry. And it's just funny, because Tattoo the Planet is what they stole afterwards. That's and the one they were going to do in Europe. You know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you what. Were you, over there? were you over there when that was going to be, when Tattoo the Planet was going to happen? Yeah, because I had, I looked at my ticket stub right before I called you. Yeah. And I still have it. It was Pantera and Slayer. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The concert never happened in Dublin. It did yeah. in the end, but it, the original one didn't, hap- didn't happen. 
Yeah, I mean, they took the uh, they took the concept from me, and then nine eleven happened, and it never, you know, the tour never happened. Yeah, they did. They, they had it later on, but Pantera didn't play. Yeah, they put Sepultura on the bill, and when I arrived at the venue that night, it said Sepultura couldn't play because of scheduling conflicts. Oh man! Yeah, so half the bill that I originally paid to see didn't happen. Uh, uh, interesting. Okay, I always felt good. Like they shouldn't have stole. They should have stole my shit. So you know, they didn't get to. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get to do their tour. But yeah. anyway, so the idea for Tattoo the Earth was, um, you know, basically to combine uh, body art, uh, tattooing with music was yeah. my original idea. It wasn't originally metal. It was just to combine the two. And nothing had really been done like that before. And lifestyle festivals were fairly new back then. There was like Lilith Fair. Uh, Lollapalooza, and then you had Ozfest and Warp Tours, so they were really starting to develop. So that was the idea to combine the two, the two interests. Why do you think it hadn't been thought of before? I mean, it probably had been thought of, but do you think people had thrown it around? And because you seem to get that a lot when you started to try and sell it, that well, I, here's why it won't work. You, you, t- yeah. you tended to get that a little bit in the beginning. Well, you know, back then, 20 years ago, tattooing was still illegal in several states and was not as widely accepted as it is now, not even close. So I think that was part of it. I know when I spoke to uh, early on and trying to get it off the ground, one of the uh, Concerts West, the big promoter in California, uh, they they tried to bring tattoo artists along on OzFest the year before and had problems with it Mm. because it's illegal in some states and how do you get them you know, approved by health departments and things like that. So I think that people had thought about it maybe and maybe had tried it a little bit, but the logistics of doing something like that and traveling with it, I think probably stopped people. Yeah. Uh, why, why do you think, Scott, that it had to be a tour? Why didn't you just start by maybe doing one or two shows close together? <laughs> well, my original idea was for, and I'm older, you know, it was for like a Woodstock type event. And the interesting thing is back then, unlike now, three day events were considered very risky because uh, the weather could uh, could play a real factor. Um, and unlike a tour where you'd have 30 shows and if you had three or four bad ones, you could make it up in the other 27. Uh, with a one day event or a three day event, if you have you know, bad weather or something catastrophic happens. Like if we go to war, people like to go home Mm -hmm. or don't want to go out, things like that. You don't have a chance to make it up. Plus when you're asking people to sleep over and you're building temporary, you know, uh, housing and and facilities. So I, you know, it was funny back then. My original idea was for a three day show and I was quickly talked out of it and said, no, the way to do this is to tour it. Which now, 20 years later, it is the complete opposite. Because hmm. I'm not a tattoo guy at all. I don't have any ink on me, right? But Well, you know, my, my first, I always offer, if you want to get my portrait, I'll pay for it. <laughs> so speak to your wife and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but um, one of the things that you do mention a lot in the book is the difficulties you had getting the permits for the yeah. t- tattooing. So I'm thinking if you want to really, you know, focus on that as part of the show that re- really one or two shows where you knew you could get permits would 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 have probably been better for you rather than 
you're going from state to state. They've got different laws. You don't know some of them until you get there. Yeah. You know, it, it ended that side of it ended up being a bit of a, a crapshoot for you at times. Well, that first tour was because we just didn't set it up properly. We used these tents and it was, you know, like, and, and as I discuss in the book, we ran afoul of, uh, at the time, Clear Channel. It's now Live Nation. Yeah. And Sharon Osbourne, and they, you know, they owned the Clear Channel, still owns the majority of the amphitheaters in the country. So we were in a position where we had a tour of half the size and we were playing rodeos and parking lots and racetracks and things like that. Yeah. Well, some of the places you mentioned, and we'll get it, I had written down the venues, right? Okay. You played in a golf range. Tell yeah. me about that. That was terrible. That was an indoor golf range. It was a bubble. Yeah. Uh, a pressurized bubble. And when we were doing the load in, uh, there was like this long hallway and you had to like bring all the stuff in the hallway, close the door behind you and then wait till that got pressurized and then open the door to go in. So it took forever to do the load in and we were in a golf driving, indoor golf driving range. Uh, there was, I think, I just saw a post someone did on Instagram or something that he remembers that there was just one entrance and exit. Mm. And uh, and it was hot. I mean, people were throwing up and passed out. And we had two stages of metal bands basically in an indoor, you know, golf dome. Um, it was horrendous. Mm. It was just horrendous. Yeah. Now, there's two, I'm going to throw some names at you because I think these names are important to get out there. Sure. Um, the first name in the book that I found important was Sean Vasquez. Yeah. Um, can you yeah. tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, Sean is. Uh, Sean was. Sean died uh, last year uh, in London. He had a heart attack. And uh, but Sean was, you know, a guy that I I met. Walked into his tattoo shop and we developed a, a friendship. And he was literally tattooing me when I had the idea for Tattoo the Earth. Hmm. Uh, the idea came to me like a sudden vision and became a vision quest from the moment I had the idea. I just thought of nothing else and was completely convinced it was going to happen, and he was the guy who was who was with me. He was a tattoo artist. The tattoo world is a very clannish world. They don't like outsiders. It's still that way. It was even more so 20 years ago. And he and I just developed this, this friendship, and then I had the idea, and he became my uh, partner in trying to get it off the ground and, and helping get the tattoo piece of it. Uh, off the ground and getting me legitimacy uh, within the tattoo industry. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned there that the tattoo industry be, being clannish, but the other thing you also mentioned was none of them really had manager. And he, here you are trying to bring them all together. You're having trouble getting, you know, permits and stuff so that they can do their, do their work. And that seemed to be just a major headache that you've all these different guys, they're all brilliant. Yeah, but they're all very, very different as people. Yes, and they're you know they're people who are really creative. They're an interesting breed, the uh, tattoo artists, because most of them have shops, so they're business people, and they're also the good ones, really highly, highly creative. And it's just one of the few, I think, legitimate art forms. Maybe it's different now with the, the nature of tattooing that they do have managers or agents. Uh, but they just didn't like being controlled. And they looked at anybody who wasn't a tattoo artist as an outsider, which is really pretty deep if you think about it. Because imagine if the bands thought of anybody who didn't play music as an outsider. Yeah. 
So, so there's this built-in, so you're not a tattoo guy, but tattoo shops are not welcoming places. They intentionally are cold. There's, there's this edge to it. And I think that's just built into the nature of tattooing and how it's been perceived in the country and that it was illegal and, you know, it was illegal in New York in 1997. Wow. Wow. You know, and just was legalized in Massachusetts in 2001. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So when I did Tattoo the Earth in Boston, tattooing was not legal. We couldn't even do a demonstration. Yeah, you did it in Suffolk Downs in the race course. I passed it on and the there, way to the airport. Yeah. No, it was a, that was a, that was a classic show. <laughs> so, do you, do you think that did the tattoo artists ever share concerns that you said that they don't really like outsiders that much? Yep, they, they would have had people at the concerts that just wanted to walk in; they were curious and have a look. You know, I think that um, you know, unlike a tattoo convention, which is just all tattooing, yeah. we were trying to branch out tattooing to the mainstream. And like I said, it wasn't mainstream twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look at the uh, a picture of the two thousand basketball dream team Olympic team, none of them have tattoos. You know, so we were really sort of battling against uh, against that perception. Uh, and trying to change that and using the music as a way to do that and to introduce our brand at first and knowing, you know, I kept telling them, you know, the music is going to be 90% or 95% of the first tour and tattooing is going to be 10. And then the next year, once we get our legs and we get more control over what we're doing, we can build it up to get it to where it's 50-50. But in my mind, the tattooing and the music were always like on the same level. Hmm. It was just going to take time to get there. Do you think the tattoo artists were willing to give it the time? Was that a hard sell? I had a couple. Well, Sean was with the planet. Philip Bluth is a great artist from Switzerland. Uh, he was with the planet. And one one artist, Paul Booth, was the one who was who felt like tattooing wasn't getting its and and the conditions on the road were horrific. Man, just you know, flash floods and unbelievable heat and and police raids and and it was that that part of it i knew was broken for the first tour and i would really have to fix for the second one whatever i ended up doing Mm. you know whether it was trailers or rvs or whatever um i was gonna have to fix that and you know um as a person who's been a business person and put on shows the first year of anything sucks man yeah. And, you know, I knew what things would go wrong before the tour even started, knew that there was nothing I could do about it and had to just live with it at every single show until that tour was over and I could fix it for the next one. Mm. And there must have been 10 or 20 of those types of things. And that's the nature of doing first ventures, especially ones that are, you know, that had sort of auspicious beginnings like ours and, and like I, you know, we our dates weren't even announced until you know a month before. Yeah, yeah. It it, it must have helped with the tattooing though that the band members, some of the band members went and got tattoos done while they were on the road. Yeah, that that part of it worked exactly how I imagined. Yeah, uh, there was. The, I mean, our our guys were just the the musicians were just a wash in in ink, and and that part of it. Um, that that part of it I knew was going to connect right away. And it took a couple of shows, and then they started getting tattoos and more tattoos. And um, uh, the, the musicians who were on the tour have really f- fond memories of it, the ones that I've spoken to. Mm. 
they 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 might have already had work with some of those tattoo artists beforehand. Well, yeah, Paul Booth had done a lot of Slayer's tattoo. He did Kerry King's tattoos. Um, Sean Vasquez. I'm trying to think. He had done more. He was a, sort of more of a punk tattooist. But Paul was sort of a favorite at that time of the of the heavy metal uh, bands and death metal bands. Mm. Um, so they were just uh, lining up to get uh, to get work from him. And Philip Lou, who's a fantastic artist to the united states very often so we had the the group of artists we brought out was really uh, an incredible level of, of artists mm. now the, of course the other big name in this book is paul zukowski yeah can you tell me a little bit about his role in it well you know paul was the paul was the guy who who uh who put on shows and i was running around for you know a year or so um and thought i was close um, but I really didn't fully understand how it works and how the talent is managed and how you get to the talent. And it's such a tightly controlled um, a group. It's such a tightly controlled commodity. You know, and at any given time, there's only a, there's a finite number of groups that can play an arena. At any given time, 20, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. There aren't a lot. No. And they're controlled by a couple agents. You know, so so that's the part of it where, you know, I got to the bands, you know, and and but it didn't matter because their agent wasn't behind it and their management wasn't behind it. Yeah, you got played by Cypress Hill, didn't you? I don't know if I got played. I think that they were just playing the game that they typically play. So I never felt that way about them, that they played me. I just think that they had their own agenda and their agent said, we can't commit to this right now. I don't feel like they were playing me per se. I just think that their agent and management probably rightfully said, you're not, you know, you're not big enough to headline this thing. Like this isn't for you right now. Um, so I never, I never felt that way. I just was like, okay, they, they're, they're just going to have to take their time and do what their agent tells them to do. So that's when I sort of was like, okay, how do I get an agent? Hmm. And they wanted nothing to do with it. I always got good response with the idea whenever I spoke to people, but managers and agents were just a brick wall. And that's where Zukowski, from doing the BB King Blues Festival for 10 years, uh, he, uh, you know, he knew everybody and he knew what it was like to buy talent, uh, and take out these lifestyle type tours. He did like a walk down Abbey Road, uh, with uh, Todd Rundgren and Ann Wilson and, uh, who else was on, uh, John Antwistle. Okay. You know, and uh, disco shows and oldies type shows, uh, hippie fest, you know, stuff like that. Um, So he had a track record of of taking these lifestyle shows out and he knew the agents. He had relationships with them. And that's when that's when we sort of shifted gears. And he basically, you know, we went to L.A. to sell this to the agents. Okay. that's that's when that's when we got close. So I had all the different pieces of it. But I was never going to, you know, it's like uh, you look in the mirror in the car, it says, you know, objects are farther away than they appear. That's kind of what it was like. I felt like I was close. Like, shit, I got a guy with money. I got Cypress Hill and other bands. Why can't I do this? And then I realized it didn't matter what I had, how much money or what band I had wanting to do it. The agents control everything. And that's where Zukowski really um, took over. Mm. Tell me about your run-ins with Irving Azoff. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, my run-ins with Irving were fine. You know, um, 
you know, when, when I had a meeting with this attorney and he's like, Irving will love this, Irving will love this. And then he said, it's Irving Azoff. I'm like, well, Irving Azoff, you know? And then as I was leaving this lawyer's office, his, uh, his assistant was getting me Azoff's number and email address or something. And she said, Oh, you're going to get in touch with the poison dwarf, huh? And I'm like, what? It's like the poison dwarf. That's his nickname. So I'm like, oh man, you know, so um, <laughs> I did a little bit of research and um, I mean, he was, he was just sort of cold that first meeting. I wasn't coming to him with the money to do it. I didn't have the bands. I wasn't, I was farther along than I thought. Um, you know, so uh, the, the thing with the, uh, the idea though, is that within a couple of weeks of having this idea, and, and I, I write in the book, I know the date and the time I had it. Uh, I got in front of Irving Azoff in his office in L.A. And, and in front of Lyle Tuttle, who was the biggest name in tattooing, like the grandfather of modern tattooing. Mm -hmm. So the power of the idea and the pitch book and, and my presenting of it, um, you know, I didn't get very far with Azoff, but I knew that I could get to the people I would need to get it done. Like, if I could get to him, I can get this in front of anybody. Yeah. So, you know, um, but it was interesting. Like I, you know, I write in the book that I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of bipolar and, and was really kind of hyped up before the meeting and kind of manic and then sort of crashed right before it. And, and just, it wasn't feeling it, you know, and he was aloof and cold. Like he's the same thing. I'm an outsider. And I've been in businesses where if someone came in and was trying to muck up the works or trying to do something, I would have had that same reaction. But I, you know, he was, I have a, a neutral opinion of him, um, but it was hard not to have it be, you know, uh, colored before I went in there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, the one band you do you do say in the book. I didn't call him the Poison Dwarf in the book. <laughs> but I sent him the book hoping he'll give me a blurb. So if he doesn't give me the blurb before I publish, I may throw it in there. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I'm putting this, if he listens to this, tell him. That. <laughs> now, the one band you did say in the book, Scott, that you, you definitely wanted to have on the bill was Slipknot. But yeah. You, you kind of looked out on that because Steve Martin and Dave Kirby, who were in the agency group, they weren't. They didn't get on, and you can't, you were able to play that a little bit with Steve Richards, the Slipknot manager, to get Slipknot on the bill. Yeah, um, I found yeah. that all that I found all that fascinating. That two guys who work in the agency group, they're supposed to be partners. One of them kind of went against the other one. Yeah, it was very unusual. Yeah, and that's the sort of. Those are the sort of machinations at Zukowski. I mean, I've worked in business, you know, a good chunk of my career, so I've seen people do strange shit. I mean, Zukowski knew these guys, and he knew what was happening. And, you know, it, it you know, uh, Dave Kirby would wear Slipknot, you know, swag in the office at Agency Group, a Slipknot jacket or a Slipknot hat, and, you know, Zukowski would say, you know, you don't do that. You're representing this band. You're not a fan. You're, you know? Yeah. And I think that Steve Martin saw that too, and, and it created some friction. So, you know, basically, uh, Steve Richards, uh, Slipknot's manager, had, you know, had lunch with Sharon Osbourne and shook hands on Slipknot headlining the second stage. And they had just, they were on like the emerging stage the year before and just blew everybody away. So, headlining the second stage was a big deal. And, you know, Steve Martin was like, listen, you know, 
there are contracts signed, and he basically told us to go around the agent and and go right to the band and their manager, and that's what we did, and, and sort of sandbagged uh, Dave <laughs> Kirby and Sharon Osbourne. So it was it would so. You know, I remember Zakowski being like, kid, hold on, kind of like, <laughs> you know, we're going to get this done, but it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, and it felt that way all along. Like, every time something good happened, we made an enemy. Every time we made took two steps forward, we made another enemy. Um, so that part of it was, but we met Steve, we went down and saw the band in Washington, and I had never seen them before, and I was like, oh, you know, and... Uh, and uh, Zakowski had known uh, Steve Richards' father. They had done shows together, and and you know they said put an offer in. So we doubled the offer that Sharon Osbourne put in for, and that just started the whole shit show. Um, that started the whole shit show. Dave Kirby must have said something to your face. What do you mean? Like what you fucking bastard or. <laughs> You know what? He never did. And I want to say this is that, you know, Dave died like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, okay. you know, um, and, and I look at it now, you know, I can look at it philosophically that he was a guy who was had a, he, a Slipknot had just gone platinum. It was a really big band, you know, and they had just signed on to do, you know, headline the, the second stage at Ozfest and the next year they'd probably be the headliners. And here we come along gumming up the works. You know, so I, I never blamed him for being pissed about it, and it didn't serve his interest, and he may not have thought it was the best thing for the band or whatever. But then at a certain point, he kept blocking us, and that's when it became a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when, you know, we didn't know what bands were going to be on the tour when we started the first show. We- and that people people always say I'm exaggerating that, and I, I'm not, man. And, you know, I didn't know with the last dates. If you look at the book, at yeah. the tour book, if you yeah. look at the Colorado date, it's the wrong date, it's the wrong city, it's the wrong venue, the wrong bands, there's nothing right. That's the tour book we had on the road. So that part of it, I was like, geez, you know, once once he saw that we were going to do it, he should have put all in with us, and that, that was the part that aggravated me. But, you know, everybody's just looking out for themselves in that business. Yeah. Um, and the bands are a commodity, and he felt like we were, you know, infringing on his. Um but it made getting the thing off the ground just just terrible. I remember once after a meeting at the agency group, I like almost broke my hand, like punched the elevator button. I'm like, give me a fucking break. <laughs> and this is after and this is after like Hill and Jack Utsick and Irving Azoff and Lyle Tuttle and all this traveling and all this shit. And I've got a band. The manager wants to do it. I've got the guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, give me a fucking break. <laughs> what I said, quote is, who the fuck do you have to blow in this town to get a fucking signed contract? Sharon! You know, like, you know, it was really frustrating. Now, you said in the book, and you d- you said it to me earlier in the interview, that you didn't announce. You didn't start announcing the dates until the, like the middle of the year. But yeah, were you worried at that stage? Like you got Slipknot, and you looked around and you said, "All the other fucking bands I want, they've all been taken for other festivals because they would have been booked months ago." Right. Well, early on, um, we hadn't announced our dates, but we did get Slayer. You know, we probably got Slayer in April, and we got Sepultura, mm-hmm. and we got Cold Chamber. So, you know, and so with those four bands as our anchor, for the most part, I was hoping that we could announce our dates in April. But this is where all of the bullshit 
and then and then while we're when we just started to get some traction and we're just about to announce the bands uh steve richards slipknot's manager gets a brain tumor yeah and you know i know it was a terrible thing for him and it really was but i was feeling at the time what do i have to fucking do here you know what i mean like i'm so close and and zukowski went out to Steve had brain surgery and Zukowski went out to LA and lived with him for like a month, a couple of three weeks. Cause he knew that if he wasn't there with Richards, uh, Kirby could talk him out of doing Ozfest. Okay. So he moved out there with him. Hmm. Yeah. It's crazy shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was, you know, you, you see, yeah. one of the things that, that definitely comes across in the book, you seem to get on really well with the Slipknot guys, right? <laughs> Yeah. The Slayer guys, not so much. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Slayer guys are very aloof. You th- What, they just think that they're great and we're better than this and all that sort of crap? I, you know, um, you know, I listened to your, uh, I listened to your Metallica podcast. Oh, the, the last one? The Black Album? The last one. Oh, okay. And, and you know, uh, your partner there said Slayer never changed. Slayer are what they are. Yeah, they never change, and I think that comes across on the road too. They're not they're Slayer. They they don't. There's not a ton of interaction with the fans, with the other bands. They're in their own little world. Yeah, because you mentioned in the book you didn't even see Tom Araya when he wasn't on stage. Yeah, they were locked up in their their bus, you know, or back at the hotel. Mm. Um, so, and they they were just that. You know, sort of the, an older band. A lot of those bands, most of the bands on the tour, a good chunk were new bands. Slipknot was a new band. They were a baby band that happened to blow up. You know, but Slayer were the old the old timers. Um, so, you know, and the guys from Slipknot were, were, I mean, I thought they were great. And I still do. And, you know, the devotion to their fans. Um, and as I'm pushing, as I'm promoting the book, I'm now back in touch with fans that I were probably speaking to 20 years ago. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. um, and they were for real 20 years ago. I knew that, that that wasn't bullshit. They weren't playing lip service, that they knew that they were unleashing something in people and that they had a responsibility to those fans and this connection and, and that I was right about. And that's, to me, the most powerful part of them. Mm. Focus! You know, because, um, you know, I was, I hadn't been to a show barely for 10 years when I had this idea. I didn't know what was relevant or what was hip or whatever. And I spent a year just going to concerts, man, and mosh pits. And I just, I can't have every band, anybody, any band anywhere. I just talk to kids, just, you know? Yeah. And after doing that, I just realized that they just want to feel like they belong to something. Mm. And they want cool shit. And Slipknot had both of those in droves, so I really felt that way at the time. Like this is really special. This isn't. This is. This is a connection. That this is. This isn't a fad. Yeah. You know, there's something powerful here, and it, and I was right about that, and it's true, and it's really. I find it really inspiring that they still feel that way about their fans, and the fans still feel that way about them. It's yeah. very cool. Now, Scott, you also had run-ins with some of the managers. Yeah. The Slayer managers. One is it Nashville yeah. Pussies manager was another. Yeah. Um, they seem to be aloof as well, some of the managers. With, they had certain demands, and if they weren't met, there were threats made. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Slayer's manager, his problem is he was too loof, you know. Yeah. And and his uh, Rick Sales man, he's just a tough character. And these are guys that just will just do whatever's best for their band and just don't have any sense of a bigger picture. Okay. You know, so it's just that feeling of, okay, these guys can get us, you know, this. We can get this out of them. There's no sense of, you know... Um, and we were going to do a live album that was set up, and, and they really put the kibosh on that. They made us get lights that we barely used because we were a daytime show, festival. Uh, so that type of stuff, just this constant annoyance. The, the Nashville Pussies manager, we got into an argument. You know, we had so many bands on the second stage. We had two stages, essentially, at one point, could be going on at the same time. Um, and Nashville Pussy was closing the second stage. And then, um, I'm trying to remember who would start on the main stage. And that first show, they'd be playing at the same, the National Post would be playing, playing at the same time as Slayer, you know, which isn't good. No. Um, and I told, <laughs> it isn't good. And I told their manager, we can fix this down the road, which I knew we never could, but I didn't, you know, we'll fix it down the road. He was just being a dick, man. And you know, the thing is, once we got on the road, you know, that's when the, the, the power thing swung and we had control. We were paying the bands. They were working for us. And it was this sense of, we don't need to take any shit from this guy. And we're sitting there, we're not getting anywhere, and he starts getting sort of professorial and talking about circular discussions and this and that. And Tukowski's just like, fuck off, man. You're fired. <laughs> and you're banned. <laughs> get out of here and he's then he's like completely flustered and you know i'm like go tell your band you know yeah and and then i, I met with Ryder size who became a friend and uh and she fired him that night she didn't know he was doing that she didn't know he was going to show up she's like hey man we're glad to be here we're getting a really good payday it's a great festival we finish it's 5 30 <laughs> you yeah. know yeah so they're like we want to stay so they did and but they fired him that night but that was the shift i had to put up with that shift before we got on the road on the road that that shifted but but slipknot's manager i mean steve richards was fine with us he just was not the most trustworthy guy you know but he made it happen for us so uh, yeah here's the thing scott that you said you paid the bands not only in the book do you say you paid the band, you overpaid them. Yeah, plus, over, overpaid them. Plus, they all would have had itineraries. They all would, you know, you would have had, this is what's going to happen. These are the times you're on. And, yeah. And, and it just seems to me that, well, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but some some of them just didn't pay attention. They just had a power trip and that was the end of it. Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think that uh, these were these were all bands. You know, you're talking about Slayer and Sepultura were established bands. Yeah. Seven Dust were new, Slipknot were new, you know, um, most of them were newer bands, so I think that that changes, you know, you got newer bands and then you've got this sort of chaotic tour, uh, the way that it was, um, the way that it was set up, um, I think that that just added to it, but I think the fact that they were newer bands, this was Slipknot's first headlining tour, you know, this was all new shit. Yeah. Um, for those bands, and I think that added to it also. Yeah. And then just the chaos of it. Did um, did you get on with the Sepultura guys? Did you see them much? Because you don't really mention them in the book that much. <laughs> yeah, and you know the thing is with the book is it's not like a travelogue. Yeah. And uh, and and I 
tended to, to the people that I knew or was able to speak to. But I did like those guys a lot. I liked Derek a lot and Andreas. I thought I really liked them. Uh, Igor, uh, they were very accessible, you know, and and liked to hang. And and I, I thought they were they they were very cool. I think uh, you, the guys for Seven Dust were very cool too. They liked to hang. I I think that you got Sepultura at the right time because they had a new singer and they would have been hungry again to prove themselves. Yeah, I think and that, Derek yeah. Derek was really good. Yeah, and I think it was an important tour. That tour. It got a lot of record deals for people. It set up people's careers. It, you know, it, it, it accomplished a lot for mm. Slipknot, for Sepultura. But yeah, I did like those guys quite a bit. Mm. Yeah. Now, one of the, another thing in the book that I've spoken to enough promoters now to know that actually this is important and a lot of people take for granted, and you got fucked over a few times on it, was catering. Oh, man. <laughs> man. You know, uh, and the thing is, catering fuck-ups haunt you forever. Yeah. I screwed up a hard show back in, like, 1980 in Maryland. This guy, we were doing backstage catering at, like, an arena or something, and screwed up dinner, which often there was, like, a riot. And I, I still feel like it feels like it was just yesterday, man. It was 40 <laughs> years ago, so nothing hurts like catering. Yeah. But, you know, Zakaski was a bit of a hustler and and uh he had this idea that you know whatever the promoter the promoter has a, ba- a budget for catering at each show that's their responsibility the dressing rooms breakfast lunch and dinner i don't know if it's two thousand dollars whatever it is and zakowski had an idea that like if he brought someone on the road and cut the right deal with them he could make money on that and we'd have control over it but he hired the wrong guy and um they only lasted a couple of shows and then the rest of the tour was was really hit or miss, man. I mean, if you asked any anybody I spoke to about the tour, when I was like, "What are the main things you remember?" It's like the catering sucked and it was really hot, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I was out on the road with my wife; I was eating the same shit. Yeah, you know. So it was just a bad decision on Zakowski's part and a disaster because we just never knew what we were going to have. We were cutting deals in each city and. Um, it was pretty horrendous. And that's where Slayer, I just like ordered pizzas for them every night. <laughs> you know, I just ordered pizzas, I bought barbecue grills and it's like, you know, and again, we just, we fucked that up. And that's the worst thing you want to fuck up. That's the thing that they just want to know that the coffee is going to be ready and lunch is going to be ready at 12. Yeah. You know, and we, we played games with that and uh, it was that part of it. It cost us a ton of money and uh, really bummed everybody out. So if anybody, any promoters are listening, young promoters, don't ever do that. Man. Yeah. Scott, was New York the only place where you had run-ins with the union workers? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was where it was overtly like that, you know. And, and I mean, these two guys came up to me and they're like, hey, one of you guys is filming. You're not going to be able to use that footage unless you pay us a $1,000, you know, fee. And I'm like, I'll tell them not to use the footage. It's just for archival purposes. Well, even if it's for archival purposes, it's $1,000, which I know isn't true. <laughs> you know, and I'm a New Yorker. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, give me a fucking break, man. Hey, I get up and walk away. They're following me. You know, like, I'm like, I feel like these guys are going to go throw me behind, like in one of the stairwells or something. And, you know, getting all Sopranos like. <laughs> um, they were just trying to get a thousand bucks. 
you know, and they, and they probably could have from a different person, but I was like, I'm not, you know. Yeah, that the, was a terrible show. The the other thing I couldn't believe about that show was was the promoter charged you for parking. Yeah, no, on, I know. On a show that you put on in the stadium. No, I know, I know. How much did he charge you for the parking? Uh, it was like twenty five bucks, something like that. Twenty <laughs> bucks. I was like pulling in. They're like, no, you got to pay. I'm like, oh, whatever, man. That's yeah, that was one of those shows. Like I knew that show was going to be terrible, and there was nothing I could do to change it. Yeah, but you have mentality. Everything that happened, everything that happened, I knew was going to happen. <laughs> you know, there weren't a ton of surprises except the guys chasing me, the union guys. That was a surprise. <laughs> but I, I was so pissed. Just all of the people, right? Who you know, Kirby and all, and Rick, it's Rick Sales from Slayer. All the people who you know, because they see a new venture and they just stick their claws in. You know, they just want to get as much money as they can and made it as difficult as possible. And I was introducing one of the bands on the second stage, and I just was like, to all these people who, like, stood in our way of doing this, just like, fuck all of You know, I was so pissed. <laughs> and they're all standing there on the side of the stage. Wow. Yeah. Actually, I told them they could all suck my dick, is what I told them. <laughs> but I don't think you can say that anymore. This was 20 years ago. And this is only, what, the third show of the tour or something? <laughs> That's the third show of the tour, man. I and was ready to go home. Tough. <laughs> oh, I was already, no, I was the first show. I was already just completely raw. And then I get, and I passed all these guys who like fucked this over. And I went on stage and I said, I'm trying to, I said like, you know, to all you people out there who helped make this happen, I can't thank you enough for the other reason we're here. And the people who stood in our way, many of whom are here today, you can all suck my fucking dick, man. Walked off the stage, <laughs> you know. So anyway. it, se- it seems to me, reading the book and what you're telling me here, that, it's not really the band members that pissed you off. It's more the band's management and the people oh, yeah. around them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the... Uh, I was a road manager years ago when I first started out uh, for jazz artists and rock artists, you know. And I was a good road manager because I didn't give a shit what people thought about me as long as the band got what they wanted. So I think that... Um, I don't think that Slipknot had their moat built around them yet. They they were they got big so fast. Yeah, that they didn't have all of the machinery around them to sort of protect them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's uh, I think that's part of it. Okay. So Scott, what was the best show of the tour, and what was the worst show? Oh man, what's the easier one to pick? <laughs> well, the best was well, they were all the worst. Uh, the first reasons? one, the Portland, Portland was for different reasons. Portland was, um, Portland was great. It was the first one, you know, and, and I really was got emotional on stage and Zukowski came over and like, you know, told me it'll never feel this way again. And, and he was right. It never did. Yeah. And that was just a really special moment. Boston, I was really excited about that show. And then we had problems with the caterer. Uh, two lesbians who worked with the catering uh, ended up playing it on in the bathroom when coffee and breakfast was supposed to be at. It started a fucking riot, <laughs> you know, and, and we couldn't tattoo. And then afterwards we got banned for life uh, from Suffolk Downs uh, by the town of Revere Slipknot and, and Tattoo the Earth. Yeah, uh, for being for being so loud. So I mean, that was like a cool show. It was my hometown show, and yeah. families there, and all that. And then we got banned for life. Yeah. You know, um, I think the the Bridgeview show was my least of all of them. That was the one that 
I was like, this is just disgusting. There's, it's like a vomitorium. It's so hot. It's like both stages are playing at once in an indoor dome. It was just horrible. What, what was the show where um, one of the Slipknot guys got maced by the security? <laughs> yeah, that was in uh, Somerset. And, you know, as we got closer to the middle of the country, it got uh, darker. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I guess they'd had a run-in Slipknot with that venue the year before on Ozfest. So it, a lot of the shows, uh, clown Sean Crahan would go out with some people and just drive around on golf carts. Yeah, and just check out. You know, at that time, no one knew what he looked like. You know, and uh, just hanging out with the fans and seeing what's going on and checking out the vendors and some of the other bands. And he and Sonny Mayo from Amen and someone else are driving along in the golf cart and a security guy like clotheslines Sean Crayhan and knocks him out of the golf cart and knocks the golf cart over and then just maces all three of them right in the face. I mean, they got clown in the face from like a foot away. And uh, it's a scene, man. The guys from Hatebreed come running over there ready to just rumble. You yeah. know, which they kind of always are. Yeah, and uh, and we didn't know if he could play. I mean, he was in bad shape. He was gasping for breath. The EMS had to come and put oxygen on him and get him back to the bus. And you know, we weren't sure if he could play, and then if we could, you know, vouch for his safety. You know, because it was the head of security at the venue who did that to him. And uh, you know, we called Zukowski, and he basically just said, "I'm not in this fucking thing to cancel." figure it out we're getting paid I'm like okay <laughs> so we did you know fair enough we did the show yeah uh but it's the only show i've ever seen where the security in the, at the front of the stage push people back into the mosh pit wow. you know, they, they drag them over usually and then they yeah. let them swing back around they were pushing them back in that's dangerous <laughs> oh the whole thing was dangerous man the whole the whole day was just horrendous so that was a ter- i mean that was probably the worst one too um, I, they all were the worst. Like uh, in Kansas, the stage caught on fire because of Slipknot's pyrotechnic guys. And my worst fear was that someone was going to die at one of our shows. And when you're doing shows in alternative venues, the likelihood of that happening are greater. Yeah, definitely. Because they're not used to concerts. Well, they're not used to concerts. People aren't used to being there. You're building bathrooms, you're building facilities, entrances, exits, all that sort of stuff. So that just makes it more dangerous uh, in the first place. So I was, you know, Kansas was terrifying for me because of that. You, you, mu- you must have pulled in somewhere and looked at the place and said, we can't, we can't do this. We put, we put the whole festival in the Rave nightclub in Milwaukee. The Rave is a nightclub, an indoor nightclub. <laughs> it's a big nightclub, but we put a festival in there. Wow. And put the festival, the village, in the parking lot. It was terrible, you know, and these, this is what happened when they pulled all, you know, if we, if, if Live Nation, as they are called now, hadn't pulled all those dates, say, hypothetically, then we would have had a tour with some alternative venues, but we would have played 20 amphitheaters. Yeah. All that was left were the alternative venues. And we were happy to have the rave because we had giant holes in the schedule. So that's how we ended up at a golf, we had the golf dome, a parking lot. The, the nightclub. Yeah, the parking lot. Rodeos. That fascinated me. I'm like, rodeos. That was one of our biggest. Lot. 
And you know what? We had like 12,000 people there. I know. In a driving rainstorm, a typhoon, <laughs> sideways rain, man. And this giant parking lot, 10, 12,000 people going mental. <laughs> yeah, man. So that's what every show was just like. I could go to every show and be like, something bad happened at every show. And not that many good things happened, at least for me. Now, this is the thing that I have to really separate is that you read the book so obviously you know this was a crazy experience for yeah, me yeah i always separated that from the fans who came to the show and and like i've had some of them who've read the book be like oh man i had a great time i'm sorry you didn't and i'm like it didn't matter whether i had a good time you know like it was a fantastic concert for the people who were there like it was it was a a a of it was a major experience for them. Slipknot's first show with Slayer, people still consider it like the best new metal tour ever. So the fans' experience was different, whether they were frustrated because they, you know, we didn't play their city or, you know, because it was too hot or we were playing in a rodeo. And even the musicians, you know, we had terrible touring schedule and we're playing these crazy places and we've got shitty catering. And if you ask, all of the musicians, almost to a person, they'll tell you it was like their favorite tour ever. I think what killed you as well, Scott, is the competition. That some yeah. of the promoters, I think in Texas, they got burned because all the to all the festivals were running at the same time. Yeah, and that really and you hurts can't absorb you. that hurts. Well, you know, these we we were we were left with all the independent uh, produced promoters. Yeah, and those guys can't absorb losses like they can, like a, the big companies can. Mm. You know. But yeah, so that's what every single play, and the last one, Manzanita Speedway, I mean, it was like, it looked like Mad Max, it's like this dirt racetrack, auto racetrack, and a haboob, the sandstorm blew in when Slayer was playing. I mean, like every show, I can look at every show and something really shitty happened, (laughs) you know? But I do it all again, like I say at the end of the book, I do it all again in a second, but, you know, it wasn't... I was really looking forward to the second year and being able to straighten all those problems out, which we would have. Yeah. You know, we had figured it out and what we needed to do. And, and you know, I'm just sorry we never got a, a chance to do a second one. Well, you got done because Sharon Osborne came in and doubled the money for Slipknot and that was the end of it. That was the end of it. Yeah. And frankly, I would have done the same thing to her. Did you, you know? did you meet her at all? Or? I never met her. Pozakowski did. Okay. Uh, he went out to LA and met with her. I never met her. Okay. You know, and really, I've been in business, and, and if I someone did to me what we did to her, I'd use every resource in my power to, to make sure they couldn't do it again. Okay. You, you know, as a business person, I didn't come into this altruistically like I wanted, you know, I wanted to build a festival, and I wanted to run it for a couple of years and then sell it to Live Nation, or, you know, and that's what OzFest did uh, and Warped Tour. They ran it for a few years, and then they sold it to Live Nation. Yeah. Um, and that, that was our goal, you know, but that second year, and that's where, you know, Zukowski made a mistake by sticking with Slipknot's manager, Steve Richards, because I really felt like he was going to play us. And, uh, and he did, you know, um, but they, I think, spent a couple of million dollars to keep us off the road the second tour. Whatever offer we would have made, they would have doubled it. And then they would double it again. Yeah, because they had the money. They had the money. They've got all the money, and they own thousands of radio stations. They own hundreds of thousands of billboards, and most of the amphitheaters. 
So they put us in a situation where we we're going to pay three, four times what the show was worth, and I'd be back in parking lots and rodeos. So they Go- basically and golf ranges and golf ranges. <laughs> that was the one I, you know, I wrote in the book that uh, I really was going to get to go up to the second level and get a golf club and just start winging balls into the crowd. <laughs> but I, and you know what? It wasn't the, it wasn't that I'd probably get arrested for doing it. It was just too much effort to walk up the stairs. It was so hot. Yeah. If it was on the ground level, I made it. Done, you know. <laughs> so Scott, when it was all said and done and it finished, I'm sure there was a big sense of relief that you know you'd pulled it off. But how soon after you finished did you get the itch to go and do it again? Because surely part of you, after what went down and the disappointments you had with a lot of the shows, you just said fuck it. Yeah. You know, how soon after did you get the itch to do it again? Was it gradual or was it immediate? Well, you know, the um, I knew that I wanted to do a second year. I just didn't know if I wanted to be on the road. You know, I emceed the shows. So, you know, I didn't know I didn't want to be on the road. That, that was what I was grappling with. Um, as far as doing a second tour, Zakowski had a plan and we were talking a slipknot and, you know... That part of it, I'm like, I'm with it, but how much am I, am I going to put myself out there was really more. And then I started to come around to it uh, as the tour, the next tour started to take shape and I started to feel better uh, about the whole thing and real and saying, I'm not going to go out on the road. We'll get somebody else to do that. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I came around. I knew, you know, I, I wasn't walking away from it. I knew I wanted to do it again. I just didn't want to be on the road. Okay. Now, me being a European, do you think that that tour would have done better in Europe than it would have in the U.S. with the tattoo um, and, tattoo and the music? You know, it might have. Been. I, I remember when I... Because uh, you did convention. You went to tattoo conventions over in, in Europe. Berlin, and you said they were a lot yeah, better. Much better. I think absolutely. I think they would have been more uh, amenable uh, to um, something different sort of counterculture i think that there was a lot of i mean you know there's there's a point in this where you know we uh, slipknot got banned in des moines their hometown show (laughs) my hometown show i got banned and slipknot's hometown show they got banned wow (laughs) you know and and i said to sean at that show i'm like what the fuck's going on here man and he's like dude you came to iowa with slipknot and slayer to tattoo their children what did you think you know it's only music and tattoos. It's on come in peace, man. We're, you know, <laughs> it's like you're coming for their fucking children. You think they're just going to leave them at the doorstep and say, "Here, have fun, ink up Johnny, and send them home." You know, uh, so so you know, I think it'd be much easier now to do it. I mean, tattooing is so accepted now. Oh yeah, um, and a lot of the things we ran into, just the legality, the whole thing, that part of it would have been uh, a lot easier. It really was sort of edgy and outside. Uh, 20 years ago. So, so over the years now, I don't know if you, how, how many of the musicians you've kept in touch with or you've seen interviews with them about this tour. Do they look back on it favorably? Have you spoken to some of them since then and asked them about it? Yeah, I have. And everybody I speak to, to a person, says that it was they just had a blast. They got to be on the road with Slayer. Like I said, a lot of them were newer bands. So, you know, here they are on the road with Slayer. Yeah. You know, that's most of the bands were like, oh, my God, Slayer. Oh, my God, Slayer. You know, so I think that part of it, 
of being part of something sort of new and crazy. Uh, Shannon Larkin, who was drumming for Amen at the time and now is with Godsmack, uh, he said it, it in all of his years in music, it was the most debauched tour he's ever been on, <laughs> which I really take as a compliment. <laughs> you know, it was a wild, uh, What a, you know, one of the guys who was on the tour, one of the crew guys told me he just never got laid as much in his life. It just like everybody just had th- this crazy best time i just wanted to make some money and do a second year and and build something you know so i feel good that it it has it resonates with people and i've had people say oh you know i signed with geffen right after that and or i met my wife on the tour like things like that it created a lot for a lot of people i mean it set slipknot on the their path slayer just they were being slayer Okay. Didn't change Slayer one way or the other. Seven Dust, it was probably their biggest touring, you know, being third or fourth on a festival like that. And then you had Mudvayne and Nashville Pussy. So, you you know, a, a lot of uh, good things came out of it. And the fans have great, great memories of it. Scott, if you had a, written the book a couple of years after the tour, how did you think it would be, the book that you wrote now? Yeah, it would be very different. Why? Um, well, first off, there'd have been a lot more debauchery because you can't write about that <laughs> stuff anymore. I, I'm telling you, the book has 10% of the actual debauchery that took place. Okay. Because it's just a different time. Yeah. And I was, re- and a couple of years after, I was still really bitter. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I was really bitter. It would have been a very different book. You would have been naming more names in it? More names, and it would have been, yeah, I would have been naming names. And, and really, the first version I wrote of this book, my wife was like, hey, don't, don't go after him no one's going to care. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to settle your grudges. No one's going to give a shit about that. And I wouldn't have been able to do that a couple of years after because I was still so pissed. Okay. So I think it would have been a, it would have been a tell all, fuck all you, look what they did to me kind of book. Okay. Uh, and I'm really glad I didn't write it. Did you contact any of the people in the book and say, is this the way it really happened? Because you, um, pers- you have your perspective and they probably have a, a different one. Yeah, I tried. And I'll tell you something interesting is that when I first had the idea to write it, I was just going to write like on the 20th anniversary when the pandemic was starting. Okay. I was going to, I was going to do like a 20th anniversary, like an oral history article, something like that and interview bands and people who were there and, you know, and, and I wasn't really even thinking about a book. And then as I started speaking to some of the bands and people who were part of it, I realized that I had a book and it was probably different than what I had in mind, and that I didn't want to speak to any more bands anymore. Okay. And I just stopped doing that. Part of it was that I didn't want to write a book about the songs that they played, about the bands. The main part is I didn't want to go chasing after them and having to get to their manager. That's the main reason. You know, I was just like, so I spoke to Shannon, um, I spoke to a writer, Size from Nashville Pussy, mm-hmm. uh, and Blaine, I'm trying to think who else, uh, Shawnee from who was in a band called Famous. And then as soon as I realized that I wanted to write a book, then I stopped, I made no effort to contact any of the bands or, and so that was a conscious decision to do well, the, that. The problem there, Scott, is that they might want to see what you wrote before you put the book out and... Uh, you know, that's too much like Tattoo the Earth, having to chase after fucking musicians to get them to help me with something. <laughs> you know, seriously, I'm like, I, I've seen this movie before. They might, they I have might no want interest you, They in might that. want you to pay him again. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of how it happened. And then I realized that the book, I didn't want to write a book like, you know, debauchery and what they wore at each show and who played what. And, it's, you know, that I, it was more a story of like a vision quest. And, and, you know, and that sort of changed as I went along. But that was a conscious decision at a certain point. Once I realized the book I wanted to write and I didn't need them to write it. Yeah. Now I've had some of the musicians contact me because the book is being published the 15th and corrected me on some stuff I just got wrong. And I corrected that. Okay. Like the name of someone or a misspelling or, you know, so that I, that's, you know, I don't want to be factually stuff like that, but I haven't had anybody come back and be like, that didn't happen that way. I think I tried to be fair. It's not a book that's written with bitterness. I know that. And I, I, you know, I don't think it comes off that way, so I don't think the bands will read it that way. It, it's a fascinating story because as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh yeah, Scott's going to just say fuck it in this part, and then you you persevere and you keep going, and then I'm thinking, yeah, he's just going to walk away now and say fuck it, and then after yeah. this show, he's going to say, ah, fuck it, I'm done, and and you, you, it says a lot about you the fact that you lasted the whole thing and you wanted to keep doing it because there's so many parts in the book. And I'm thinking to myself, nah. And, and even when he, when he finished the tour, I said, there's no fucking way he wanted to do another one. And now you said, yeah, you were all up for doing another one. Yeah, I was up for the business. I knew that getting that first tour off the ground was important. Yeah. And that, you know, after the fact, no one remembers all the little shit. They just remember you did your first tour after you've done 10 of them. You know, in the context of the Warp Tour of doing 25 years, those first couple, they probably don't even remember. So I had a sense of that. I knew that we, we were in, we had a good opportunity to, to really build the thing. I just didn't want to be involved with the tattoo artists. I didn't want to be on the road with the musicians. And in, in retrospect now, cause I, in the earlier part of my career, I was a road manager and spent years on the road in Europe. I did a lot of European road managing. Okay. And, um, as I've gotten older and, you know, I've got my, my brand of craziness, just being on the road isn't good for me. It's just not good for my mental state. It's I just not normal. Want, I just, it's not normal. No. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't good for me. Like, uh, you know, and just being uh, exposed like that, you know, every day, uh, being the person on the line, it just, to me, that wasn't what I signed up for. And I like the emceeing and all that, but anybody could have done that. Um, um, so that that's where as a business, I was like, okay, we got that first, you know, tour done. Now let's build this fucking thing. You did say, um, you did say there was a live album done. Was there a yeah. lot of it filmed for a live deal? Did any of the bands film the concerts? No, no. You know, unfortunately, we I had a videographer on the tour, and I don't know where the footage is, man. It's in some lawyer's vault somewhere. Wow. Um, so there's a ton of footage. They just recorded that album. Uh, just the audio in a driving rainstorm. One one chance because sales, Rick Sales and Slayer had put the kibosh on yeah. the album we had set up going in, so it was kind of done at the last minute. I think it sounds pretty good. Yeah, you oh, know, I've heard it. It does sound pretty good. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. But, uh, Jimbo Barton, I think, was the producer. He did a good job. Yeah, and, and, but I, you know, I, I'd love to. What I, read, after reading the book, I'd love to see like a video of some of the venues. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know, are you an, are you an Instagram guy? Because what I'm doing is I have the whole archive of like 300 slides. Okay, I'm not on I'm Instagram. Dumping. Oh, well, I'm doing it on Facebook too. Oh, okay. 
I'll look on Facebook. Then. Look on whatever you're. Va- I'm doing it. On, look on Facebook. You'll see pictures of the venues. You'll see a lot of the stuff that I wrote about in the book. Pictures of it. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that's what I'm doing as part of my promotion is to just dump this whole archive onto the social media sites. Nice. Um, and it's got some of the venues and the tour book and the radio ad. I'm going to post the radio ad. Good. Uh, and the poster, you know, all this stuff. I'll tell you a weird thing is, you know, and I write about it in the book, you know, it was kind of like a one hit wonder, you know, and, and at a certain point I had to get on with my life. And I stopped thinking about Tattoo the Earth. I didn't want to talk about it. I sort of put everything in the basement. You know, it was sort of this thing I did and I need to move on because I could get stuck doing it. And now here I am 22 years later, flogging Tattoo the Earth again. I'm talking to the fans. It's really poignant for me, like, you know, on Instagram, you know. I actually had someone on Instagram be like, why didn't you play North Carolina? We have great venues there. Like 20 years later, 20 years ago, I was answering that same kid going, be patient, be patient, you know, like there's a poignancy about it. And I really never thought that I would sort of unleash that to the earth again or throw myself into it in any way. And I am and I'm actually really enjoying it because people seem to be enjoying the book and the fans are really digging it. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of weird, though, to hear 22 years later, except back then it was all email. Yeah, that was true. the only thing. Like, it, there was no social media. There was nothing. It was basically email and websites. I'm sh- I'm sure you're you're probably glad there was no social media because the debauchery on this was up on social it media. Been, shut down. Well, first off, I would have been arrested in that year and a half putting it on. The, <laughs> there were at least a half a dozen instances where, if there were cameras around, I absolutely would have been. I'm really glad in my life. I'm glad that I wasn't around for the camera thing, man, because. I got lucky, uh, but the, you know, but, um, yeah, so that, that's, it's, it's a weird thing here. 22 years later that people, it's nostalgia and people really love this tour and the bands Slipknot's still relevant, really relevant. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, it's funny, their tour starts on March 15th is when my book comes out. I didn't know it was the same day. Nice. So there's things coming together like that, that, you know, when things come together, you can tell when things are meant to be and they come together. And Tattoo the Earth felt that way when I was trying to get it off the ground, you know, but I, and it's funny you said that, like at all those points where I was, should have said, like, he's going to just say, fuck it here. I never really even considered it. I just knew it was going to happen. I could close my eyes and stand in it. I just knew it. And anybody I spoke to knew that I knew it. You know, and I had doubts and I even kept them to, away from myself. You know what I mean? It was a, a real uh, lesson in just sort of positive thinking. And I'm not that type of person. You know, I'm a fucking crazy Jewish neurotic New Yorker. Okay. You know, so yeah. this was sort of the opposite of like, just be yourself. Follow your instinct. Don't stop. You know, anytime someone told me to stop, I just started doing harder. It was, you know, so in that ways, it was, you know, it, it meant something more to me. And I write in the book that kind of getting it off the ground was as important to me as anything else. And believe me, I would love to have run it for 25 years like Warped Tour and made millions of dollars. You know, it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. But seeing it through and, and making it real, to me, that was the that was my payoff. Yeah, um, that was my payoff. I got my payoff before the tour even started. I didn't need to do the tour to get my payoff. Just getting it off the ground. Just enough. getting it off the ground. That first show in Portland. Yeah. Like, hear the kids, man. Yeah. You know? It smells like weed. 
and they're <laughs> making out behind the tents and you know and Slipknot's playing and it's tattooed the earth yeah so you got I to hope live that the dream well, you know, I don't know what I was living. I, I look at it now, it's just sort of, a, like I said, I had a, like a little bit of a psychotic break and ended up on stage at Giant Stadium, you know? Yeah. But uh, the response has been really good, especially the people people who were on the tour and people who went to the tour. Excellent. Um, that it captures it, so. All right. So, Scott, tell yeah. people where they can buy the book, Caravan of Pain. Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth tour. I used to tell people when I do the announcing, I'd, I'd do a whole spiel and I would look at the, I'd look at someone in the crowd. I would go, I would say, someone's going to bleed today. And then I would point to someone right in the crowd and I'd go, it might be you, motherfucker. <laughs> so I tell people, if you're going to be buying this book, it could be you, motherfucker, that gets tattooed to the earth. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Smashwords. We're going to have an audio book and uh, you can get a signed autographed copy on our, on my site, caravanofpain.com. Nice. Well, another thing about the Tattoo the Planet show that I went to in Dublin, there was no tattooing. Yeah. It was just a concert. Yeah. So the whole concept was uh, it was just use the name and sell it. Yeah, which is why it didn't. You know, we were, we were really trying to... I really wanted to get tattooing into the mainstream, and I think I did in my... played a role in what happened in the last 20 years. Yeah. In what, how people thought of it, and but... You know, we were really committed to the body art piece of it and having that over the years to become a really big part of it, okay. you know, and that was kind of, that was kind of a bummer that didn't, you know, we didn't get a chance to do that. Yeah. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure. It's hey, really man, it was nice really... reaching out to me. Yeah, it was really nice talking to you. I really appreciate the support. You have a good one. You too. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. And there you go. There is Rishi's chat with Scott Alderman, the author of Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth tour. And uh, yeah, just this guy has got just an incredible background as a roadie and stage manager, road manager, and, you know, putting on the festival and just a lot of stuff. And if you do want to score yourself a autographed copy hardcover of the book, you can pre-order that at scottalderman.com. And that is Alderman as in A-L-D-E-R-M-A-N. Also on there, you can check out the uh, the live album they made from the tour and read about the first book that he did as well. So again, you can hit scottalderman.com and grab yourself the autographed copy. Or you can also get it, pre-order it from Amazon. You can pre-order it from Barnes & Noble. And you could also check and see... Uh, you know, whether your local bookstore has it, pre-order it from there. We've got links for that, too, up there. But if you ever wanted to know the behind-the-scenes stuff, especially after listening to this interview, then you definitely want to pick yourself up a copy of this one. So I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks as we've been back to the uh, treadmill of putting out shows. Really not sure yet literally what is going on next week, but we'll, uh, we'll cross that bridge. Who knows? Maybe there'll be one of those skip a weeks. Who knows? That's the joy of not being syndicated anymore. But uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
You're still here? It's over. Go home.